You're listening to the Ship Bob Operator Series. Each week, your host, Casey Armstrong, e-com veteran, is joined by founders, operators, and insiders who are bringing along their stories and data to give you the exclusive inside scoop and tactics from those who have been there, done it, and gotten their hands dirty. You can tune in for a live recording Wednesdays. Head to operators.shipbob.com for the details. But until then, enjoy this audio replay. And we are live. Welcome, everybody. Casey Armstrong over here at ShipBob. This is episode one, season two of our operator series, where we bring on some of the leading direct consumer founders and operators in the space. So really excited what we've got on here today. So I'm going to do some quick introductions. I've got a bunch of questions. I know that we got a bunch of questions from the audience in advance, and, and hopefully you'll bring your questions as Andre and Chris share some of their knowledge. So before I jump into my introductions, everybody in the chat, if you want to drop in where you're dialing in from, I'm here in Southern California, so Orange County, just south of Los Angeles. So again, drop drop in the chat. Let's see where you guys are coming in from. We've got Chris in Toronto. Perfect. So Andrea Lisbona is the founder and CEO of Touchland. We've been fortunate to work with her for quite a while over here at ShipBob. They are the hand sanitizer for Happy Hands. I was joking with them before that uh, I was going to pull out my product. I've been a customer for a while as well. And so uh, as you'll see, I don't know what the saying is. It's not your grandparents' hand sanitizer. Even from like the packaging to how you use it, it's pretty cool. So I highly recommend checking it out. I know that the content you all hear for is me modeling products. So uh, I'll end it pretty shortly. But it's it's got moisturizer in as well. Anyways, pretty cool product. Um, and they launched it, which Andrea will share well before before COVID and a lot of the hand sanitizer craze. And like I said, I'm a proud customer along with Jessica Alba, Chris Jenner, Naomi Campbell, a lot of celebrities we're all familiar with. So I can't wait to hear how Andrea was able to foster that kind of brand as well. And then also that you guys were just mentioned in Google's 2020 economic report as well as one of six Florida-based companies that grew very well last year. So I can't wait to hear about that. Congrats on that. And then we have Chris Lavoy, who's over here from Gorgeous. They're the leading D2C customer support solution and a, a longtime ShipBob customer. So really glad to have Chris on here as well. We have hundreds of shared customers, including Touchland. So I can't wait to hear how we, we dive into that as well. And they're just a great compliment to us at ShipBob, where we're trying, trying to provide the best customer experience on the fulfillment and the post-purchase space. And, and that's really where Chris and Gorgeous come in and helping maintain and foster that relationship with your customers. and. Let's see. I'll I'll go to the chat real quick. We've got Chicago. Andrea's in Miami. More Chicago, Connecticut, Montreal. We got some more Canadians. More Canadian, Vancouver. Let's see. We'll probably have some more people coming from international places. So, to start, Andrea, please. What was what was the catalyst to, to launch Touchland in the first place? It's a long story. We started in 2010, way before anyone had interest on hand sanitizer space. We truly believe that hand sanitizer was a product that is going to change the way you go through life and stay healthy on the go. 80% of infectious diseases are spread through hands. It doesn't have to happen a pandemic to wash your hands. So when we really understood like daily hygiene habits from brushing teeth and everything, at the end of the day with PC lives, hand sanitizer is your best ally on the go. And prior to Touchland, the, the industry was very commoditized, full of products that were very sticky, smell like tequila or vodka crack your skin. And we were challenged to believe how do you expect people to use hand sanitizer if the experience is so bad. So that was the catalyst. We really wanted to create a product that helps people and enables people go through life without having to concern about germs surrounding them. That's crazy. Yeah. Over, a little over a decade ago, getting this started. So you mentioned the stat of the percentage of diseases that are spread through the hands. What made you really believe in in this as a market and really believing that consumers would adopt this, you know, at the individual level? Because I truly wanted to create something that really had an impact. And at the end of the day, there are you can create a lot of products, but I truly believe hand hygiene. And if you think about the life prior to COVID, I used to take three planes a week, 20 Ubers a day when I was in New York, and you never have water and soap available. So at the end of the day, the same time that you wash, uh, brush your teeth three times a day, I truly believe that this was going to be daily habit that people would incorporate in their day-to-day. And we wanted to be like the apples, the Nespresso, the Dyson, really taking this category and elevating it into something that 
you look forward to use. Yeah. And I mean, as you can tell with the product here, you can see that you guys took design, you know, it's, it was top of mind. Uh, and then behind you, I believe, I don't know which shoulder, your right or your left, I believe your left. Left. Sometimes it, sometimes it flips the cameras on us, <laughs> is one of your hand san sanitizer stations. So you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, so we launched two product lines, the Power Mist, which is the hydrating pocket-sized hand sanitizer mist. And then we launched the Cube, which is the world's first smart hand sanitizer dispenser. And when we take a category and we really want to disrupt it, we do it from all the angles. So, for example, from the business standpoint, besides doing a beautifully designed hand sanitizer dispenser that is protected from, like, kids getting hand sanitizer on the eyes, that's why it has incorporates a tray within the design, and it dispenses like our, our high quality formulation, one of the biggest pain points was technology. At the end of the day, businesses, when they implement hand sanitizers, the last thing that they want is a headache and having to check constantly if refill or battery levels are, are okay. So we launched the first smart hand sanitizer dispenser that basically enables you to connect to your phone and connect up to 100 devices and it will tell you when the refill and batteries are running low. And it also tells you how many liters of water have you saved. So if you opt into 50 dispensers and you have it within all your, all your offices, like at the end of the year, you can see that every time that you wash your hands with water and soap, it's two liters of water. And at the end of the day, hand sanitizer, if your hands are not visibly there, it's a cost-efficient and sustainable solution and alternative to hand-washing with water and soap. So we want to empower also through the platform to, for people to understand like water scarcity and water awareness and kind of like engage people to save more water. Nice. I love that. And I, I want to get to some of that in a little bit, especially on the technology side and what you're offering for businesses. But before we get there, so you mentioned you started this in 2010. When did you officially launch Touchland so somebody could go online and buy from you guys? So we had different stages from 2010 till 2014. We distributed hand sanitizer solutions. I think entrepreneurs, we have in our minds what the ideal product is, but sometimes those are false realities. Like you may think people want this, people want like a shape that is more round, others. So I think what we did for five years, four years and a half is really understand from the inside why companies are using foams and germs and gels, why companies are using mechanisms that are gears and not magnets. So really understanding all of the pain points on the, on the industry. And then in 2014, we launched in Barcelona. You can tell from my accent that I'm not from here. We launched the brand. It was very successful. And in 2016, we took the decision that we needed to jump across the ocean and come to the biggest market of hand sanitizer, which is US. It's 30% of the global demand of hand sanitizers. And we officially launched with a Kickstarter campaign in July 2018 that was fully funded in 24 hours and ended up being 450% funded. And then we launched our D2C in December 2018. So it's been less than three years since we launched. Again, congrats on the, the Kickstarter success there. That's crazy to get almost 5x your target. How did you generate that awareness? Were you guys building a customer base and a list in advance or you guys got it out there and you think that the demand just resonated from you know getting a handful of people to promote it? What'd that look like? So we, we did not generate any list previously to launch. And it was, I think one of the things that Tosland has is that it has this viral coefficient Mm -hmm. A lot of customers that we have, they say, I get more compliments for my hand sanitizer than from my shoes. So I think it has like, kind of like, what is this? Like I, every time that I'm in a restaurant or I'm in an airport, I get stopped by someone to ask me, what is this bottle? Like, is it a perfume? Is it an iPhone with liquid inside? So I think uh, this vital coefficient really allowed us to start building the community within the Kickstarter world, which is an amazing platform because at the end of the day, this is people that really believe when it's just an idea. And they buy your product with the expectation that this idea comes to life. And now this community has grown incredibly on social media. Instagram, we have over 130,000 followers. TikTok, we launched last year and we hit 10 million views on hashtag Touchland. So wow. it's been a very vital uh, growth. That's awesome. Starting direct-to-consumer and in a country that was newer to you, what were the first steps you did to you know, get the site launched and start generating those first customers? outside of uh, the Kickstarter, of course. So first of all, started hiring good people. Um, <laughs> that really has done that in the past. I think getting surrounded by people that has been able to grow fast growing e-commerce brands, that was a priority for us. And then it was like, I always say, rolling up the sleeves and get it going. 
I started reaching a lot of beauty bloggers on Instagram myself and explaining the story. And at the beginning, it was funny because Totland straddled the lines between skincare and hygiene. And so we started reaching beauty bloggers for them to review our skincare forward hand sanitizer. And every person that we reached, they were like, do you realize I review serums and creams? Like, I don't review hygiene products. So it was all about educating. And I, I guess it got, it got like a snowball effect. It was hard to get it going. But then last year, we had to automate it through forms online. We had over 2,000 collaboration requests in 2020. I love that. And I feel like you hear that so often from entrepreneurs. Like, you see the, the vision and like what the, what the future is going to bring to us. And it's just, you're in the trenches fighting that day after day to like sell that future vision. So I guess maybe from the first influencer or beauty blogger, you got to give the thumbs up and to how that evolved. Like what was it that you were, you know, sharing with them and then got them to like finally bite and help share, you know, your shared vision with, with Touchland? I shared the vision. I shared, like, again, we had a very big goal to become the apples, the Dysons, the Nespresso of hand sanitizers, and also at the same time being able to do an impact in society. We implemented the Touch Less campaign already in 2014, where we dedicated 5% of the profits to send our waterless solutions to developing countries where water is scarce and hygiene is crucial. And last year, we shifted gears towards helping in the U.S. because a lot of healthcare workers did not have hand sanitizers to fight COVID. And then we readdressed uh, our Touch Lives campaign to really be able to help in, in the U.S. And now we are shifting all our gears towards public schools. So we've been sending dispensers and power bills to schools for teachers and alums to be able to go back to class safe. That's great. I mean, yes, support, supporting the kids and as somebody with a few little ones, they, they are often pretty dirty. And so they definitely need this product. So your approach for going to the beauty bloggers and the beauty influencers, you did a very similar approach to the retailers. And I believe going to like the Ulta beauties of the world. So how did you approach them and, and get them to buy into your vision as well? It takes a lot to say no to many opportunities in order to be able to say yes to others and think, I always say, take small steps short term, but be able to always have that vision of where you're going to go. So when we disrupted this industry, I think like the biggest challenge is you want to be a disruptor and then you disrupt the product, but then you don't disrupt the way this is promoted, the way this is sold, the way this is commercialized. So in our case, for us to be a true disruptor, we really wanted to become a lifestyle brand. And all hand sanitizer brands were sold in supermarkets and pharmacies. And what Touchland has been able to do, and that's part also of seeing how we've been able to drive up our AOB in, in our e-commerce, is that Touchland has become the first hand sanitizer that you don't buy for personal use only. In our site, people buy in average five to six units or six to seven right now since we started. And that's the reason why like it's become so like vital is because this has this shareability effect people buy it in order to give it to other people and um, so when we thought about like the retail strategy the easy way would have been go to the supermarkets and the pharmacies of the world but we decided that we wanted to be in all the fashion and beauty retailers in the u.s so after six months in b2c gathering all the data and everything to be able to say it's just not a beautiful product that feels great it actually sells great so we started selling in urban outfitters revolve bloomingdale's nordstrom Ulta in 1,200 doors previous to COVID, and we were fully sold out within seven days. So it was it was a great, great experience in retail for us, too. I love the go-to-market innovation there as well, where you're going to an area where there aren't other hand sanitizers. You're really differentiating yourself, both in what the actual product is and the look and feel. Have you seen others try to copy your approach and get into the Ultas of the world? And, and what does that look like? Yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I always say competition is good. When we started, it was really hard because we were the only ones doing everything, not only from the retail standpoint, from the B2B strategy. Most hand sanitizer companies just focus on healthcare facilities. And what we realized is that human interaction happens everywhere, restaurants, gyms, hotels, everywhere. And hand sanitizer companies just think about like getting to all the hospitals because that's where all the business is, but our goal was to really educate other places where there were not hand sanitizers that at the end of the day, germs are not only living in hospitals, they live around us and that they should be taking care of their employees and taking care of their customers when they enter through the stores. 
So we've been able to set up amazing partnerships with Equinox Group, Soul Cycle Blinks, Joe and the Juice, Sweet Green, Four Seasons, Standard Hotels, like a lot of businesses that really understood that this was not just about hand sanitizing, but actually being aligned with the values of the of their companies. I like that because that also further enforces the brand you're trying to build, which is, you know, where where you're selling. I think a lot of it's a a book by Marshall McClune with the medium is the message. And it's like how you get to customers is as equal or if not more important than what you get to the customers. And so what you're getting to them, you know, at, at, at an Equinox or at an Ulta Beauty, their expectations are different. And like you mentioned, like I would never have thought of like gifting a hand sanitizer before. And I've definitely bought and gifted some of these. Again, it's like you look at it and it's this, it's this cool product. And like you said, there's yeah. the morality built into an actual physical item where people are going to ask you about it. So Everybody in the audience, please ask away. Again, selfishly, I love it because I can ask Andrea a bunch of stuff and, and learn from smart people like her. But please, this is for you all as well. And we do have a question from Marina from Fameco. She submitted this before. How did you think about brand awareness before you launched? And how long did it take before it really started to take hold? And if I were to add to that, again, you've been able to get, let's say, the Chris Jenners of the world who have huge reach to utilize or to use and also share your product. So what, what did that brand evolution look like? And, and when you finally were able to crack in with some of these huge names? So I would say, and I always get asked about this question, which is there's not a secret sauce. And it's and I always say, sometimes brands just think about brand awareness from influencers and like partnerships and all that. At the end of the day, brand is everything that creates the company from customer service, to B2B salespeople, like everything talks about the company that you are. And and sometimes brands just invest a lot on just like the outer shell of the company, that it looks beautiful, that it looks very cool. But I think it's like a nightless castle at some point it's going to fall if you don't have those foundations. So I've been building a brand that I truly believe in and I believe everything will come at the right time. We've been very scrappy always because in Europe it's very hard to raise funds so I think I have that mentality of being careful on spending so I think one of the the things that I, I like to share for also for entrepreneurs to be excited is that you don't really need a big marketing budget since we launched Totland has not spent one dollar on paid collaborations the reason why is because as a heavy Instagram user whenever I see hashtag ad I start losing credibility towards that review I think that person is getting paid to say that they love the product um, so we wanted to ensure that at the end of the day if someone receives a product that that review is whatever they think if it's good it's good if it's not good the truth will come out I think some brands they pay because they are scared that it's going to be a bad review and if you have a product that the quality is not good doesn't matter how many influencers you pay it's going to go out in the market. So that was one of our mantras. Like we don't want to pay to get good reviews and to get that exposure. And also we did not want to pay to play on press. And last year we got 32 billion air media impressions. And I remember in the beginning it was hard <laughs> because no, no one wanted to talk about hand sanitizer. That's not a cool thing to talk about. And we really invested in like, look, this is like a story as cool as Nespresso, as cool as Dyson. Like when they started, I think like people sometimes just say, it's just a hand sanitizer. It's just a hair dryer. Well, it's just a phone, but those are the items that really change your day to day and it make it better. I love that. And, and Pat has a question on transitioning from D2C to B2B. And so I want to dive in that in a little bit. But first, you mentioned customer support and I'm sure Chris will have some insight here as well. How have you thought about your customer interaction over time? And another thing is you mentioned the scrappiness and, and that's where, you know, I'm, I might be biased, but I love a lot of the technology solutions out there today. Like you guys are on, you guys are on Shopify and that allows you to do a lot with a smaller team. You work with us over at ShipBob that allows you again to do a lot with a smaller team. You work with the, the gorgeous team and, and that makes you more efficient there as well. And so how, how have you guys approached, you know, your interaction with customers and how's that evolved over time? It has not about a lot. Like we've been from the very beginning treating every customer as they were the four seasons. I think some companies, they differentiate the, how they talk to influencers to how they talk to customers. And I think in our case, it's the same treatment. These are like people that love their brand that they bought into our product and we want to give like a white glove service. It doesn't matter if you buy one power mist, 50,000 cubes, like at the end of the day, every person put like a grain of sand into the into the goal. So since the very beginning, we've been very customer 
driven and and i think people appreciate it because there are some brands that simply will just care about the the influencers and all of that and they forget about people that really pay for their product and and i think customer service is is one of the most important tools for a company nice i I agree and and so chris for you on customer support how have you seen maybe the evolution in of mediums and how people interacting i think a lot of it at least, you know, when, when I use customer success tools forever, you know, starting forever goes, it was all email based and maybe through the software. And now people are on their phones all the time, but they're in the, they're also in a bunch of different apps. So what, what have you seen, Chris, like what are the biggest trends or changes in consumer behavior? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. First, I just want to say I'm uh, thoroughly enjoying this conversation. I've learned a lot from you, Andrea, and it's a, it's a pleasure to keep listening. I'll answer this question on the what am I seeing trend-wise with how customers are interacting with businesses? And so you're right, Casey, that email, people calling in back in the day with those 1-800 numbers was the, the way of the past. But now your customers are going to interact with your store in many other channels, um, such as social channels. And so that's a big trend. So people might be commenting on your post on Instagram and, and Facebook, for instance. And you might not think that that's a, a support interaction, but if they're actually leaving reviews or they're asking product questions and that that should be pulled into support. So if someone on your team has visibility. So for instance, Gorgeous fully integrates with Instagram, Facebook, including the, the direct messages of each of those platforms. And so now if someone's leaving a nasty review, for instance, on one of your pages, that's fine. But now you'll see that and you can be proactive about it and try to satisfy that customer as opposed to missing that completely. So to answer your question, it's not enough to just be responsive on email. You need to connect with them uh, on social channels. SMS, uh, as well as have a really robust live chat as well on your website. Nice. Yeah, SMS is something that I like often because we're, I know I'm not in the minority here, but just where my inbox, you know, can get flooded pretty quickly, as I'm sure a lot of people feel like that. And, And with text, I feel like it's, you can write shorter responses and hopefully get to the resolution faster. So I guess to both of you, I guess Andrea, to start with you, have you guys been utilizing text from a customer support or sales perspective much or not yet? From a sales perspective, yes. We implemented like abandoned car, SMS strategies and all of that from customer service, not yet, but we are a very social media driven company. So it's been great from Gorgeous to be able to integrate that into customer service and again as as you said chris like be able to see someone that is not satisfied on social media and really don't think that this is just a social media comment this is actually a current customer that is not happy and that you can change that through customer service so before we unlock the huge topic of b2b there were some questions in the the question section so this is from christina i'm going to flip her question so it's not easy to make creative packaging for regular products like this. And so how did you develop the packaging for the hand sanitizer? So <laughs> I studied business administration and then I did a course on design. I always love how design really changed the way you can utilize a product. It's not just, it looks beautiful, but the fact that it can be ergonomic, that you can put it in your pocket. Like there's a lot of things that make design that are not just like the artistic approach to it. It's usability, usability. So we iterated a lot also for, for the dispenser. I think that was one of the hardest parts. And we went through different shapes and everything. We wanted to integrate a tray into the dispenser because a lot of kids previous with the, with the products that we distributed from other brands, they would put the head under the dispenser and the liquid would come to their eyes. So we wanted to integrate in a beautiful way, a tray, and, and we were able to do it. And I think in terms of creating it, I'm a lover of design. So I started reading how companies like Apple design with the golden ratio and the Fibonacci and all that, that which is, it's very cool because you don't realize about it, but it's beautiful to the human eye and the human eye reacts better to these kind of design parameters. So when we created Touchland, we, we were using those parameters that brands like Apple use to create their products. We even implemented it to the logo of Touchland. If you see the evolution from 2010 to now, the hen had different proportions. It was a smiley hen, but it, it was different. It was not as beautiful as the one that we have right now after implementing the golden ratio. And I think one of the biggest challenges when you create something beautiful is that we invested a lot in patterns of design in many, many countries in the world. And last year, with all the success and press and everything, we experienced over 2,000 patent infringements. So we started partnering with an artificial intelligence software company called RedPoints that basically screens through all the marketplaces, like 
Alibaba, Aliexpress, Taobao, Amazon, Amazon, and all that. And it lets you know, well, like these are all the people that is copying your bottle or using your trademark. And then you can enforce those IP rights. But that's, I guess, the price of, of growth and visibility that you get fusillated with all of these copycats. Yeah, because I am not a designer and will never claim to be a designer. But obviously, like many of us, appreciate good design and and again, just even using it, like whatever I was using before, you know, since some like plastic bottle is too hard, you're like squeezing the hell out of it. Like this ketchup. thing just fits in your, yeah. yeah, like ketchup. This thing fits in your hand. You can see when you're running low. It's easy to use. Like you said, you can put it in your laptop bag or your purse or your pocket or wherever it may be. I love that. So to get into the B2B side, and maybe I'd love to know or for have you share more on utilizing your direct-to-consumer sales and your reach with influencers and celebrities to then turn those customers into, let's say, buying in bulk or B2B customers. So what did that look like? So the real story is that we started as a B2B company. (laughs) So in 2010, we started distributing uh, hand sanitizer dispensers. And what we realized when we were going to launch in the US is that we needed a D2C product that would help us grow the brand really fast. And so that's when we designed the Power Mist. And then like we we switched the strategy and we started launching the D2C, the product for, for everyone. And then this would be the business card for businesses to get to know the brand and then opt into our B2B solution. And it's been challenging, I must say, especially from the investment standpoint. I think investors are always very interested about D2C and CPG companies. And when they hear the word B2B, they get completely (laughs) shut down because I don't think, obviously it's hard, it's hard to scale. But at the same time, I I also think like companies like Apple, they created the iPod, the iPhone, like that product that can fit into everyone's lifestyle. And then they develop business solutions like the MacBook, the iMac, like solutions that are more like elevated or they have like a higher price point. But at the end of the day, they were able to disrupt specific categories and provide specific solutions for, for all of the users. And then what about with with your customers? Like how have you guys leveraged data to see who's buying and who's buying often or who's maybe buying in bulk and at larger companies? Have you have you guys started leveraging that data to then identify maybe customers that could buy the product that you have behind you or 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 buy larger quantities? So the biggest challenge, obviously, with data is that it's it's all about experimentation. So from the power mist standpoint, I always say like there there's examples like when you see pigs on the side you're running sales like normally and then you see a massive peak on the site and then you have to be able to trace back and find an attribution of where this is coming from. So one of the experiences that we had, I think it was in in uh, June 2019, we tripled the sales on the site from like we went to 9% conversion rates. We were like, who is these people? Like why, why are they coming to the site and converting uh, so good? And then we started asking and calling those customers like because sometimes you have a lot of tools, but all those tools are not going to provide you the answers that you want to go and the granularity that you want to get. And so we started asking and they actually saw editorial full page on Real Simple, which was an audience that we didn't even think that was a target demographic for Touchland. So that helped us uncover another target demographic. So we are very we are very data-driven. So whenever we see any anomaly on the site or anything, we try to find to the smallest detail the granularity of who is that person, how do they got to know us. And in terms of bringing the B2C to the B2B, it's always a challenge. Like we even use our social media channels like with like a very few doses of B2B and people react really good. But at the end of the day, these are very like different profiles. Like this can be like for everyone, but the, the dispenser... It can be for a specific people that work in an office or that work in a hotel or, or very specific industries. But what we realized by doing testing from moving from the power mix to the B2B solution is that there was a, a gap there for people that actually want to buy the dispenser for home. So we started doing A-B testing and we were able to, to scale and start selling the, the dispenser for homes and create assets that are only related to the home uh, target. And you said real simple. So what what is I'm not familiar with Real Simple. What, what's Real Simple, and why didn't you think they were part of your target demographic? Well, our target demographic we thought again was like 20 to 40 years old design lovers, Instagram users. The Real Simple audience is it's for 50 plus years old woman, and it was like different than our initial target demographic. So I think like 
that also helps a lot as a lot to open our like marketing communication strategy to really understand like okay we're not just a hand sanitizer for this specific target demographic actually we have other target demographics that compared as good or even more than the ones that we thought that were like our initial target demographic and they also had different patterns of purchase like that our initial target demographic mainly is buying for them in in bundle and box but then this other target demographic was not only buying for them, but this buying for the daughters and the and the sons and for their friends. So it was like more from a gifting point of view also. So we always try to to use data to to be able to grow and scale the company. Nice. And so I have some questions to get into the the nitty gritty or to get into the weeds. But before we get into that, Pat had a question. How much funding was required, if, and if you can share, how much funding was required to start the company, or or how did you approach like the fundraising aspect versus covering as much as you could yourself or through your customers' revenue? It was hard, <laughs> very very hard, and whoever says it's not hard, um, I don't know. In our case, it was extremely hard. I always say it was kind of like the pursuit of happiness that moved from <laughs> Will Smith. Um, I remember. When we started racing in order to move into the U.S., it was very challenging because we were an European company willing to move to the U.S., so European investors were not very excited to see a company go, and American investors, they didn't see us still in the U.S., so we were in, in the middle of the waters, and it was exhausting. I used to take planes to visit funds in Paris that they wanted to meet with me, woke up at 2 a.m., grab a plane when you are trying to save money to get to the to the end of the funding process and getting there and just say, well, we don't invest in products, but here's some advice. And I just felt like very frustrated. And I feel a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to that because I think like the investor world, sometimes it's all about like curiosity and getting to see what companies are doing without any interest on really investing, which is with the few, very few limited time that entrepreneurs have, I think that it could be used in better usages. And then we ended up finding an investment almost, I would say, one week before we were going to run out of funds through my business school, like a family that had followed me through all the years, believed in me at the end of the day, that really believed that I was going to find a way to execute whatever I, I, I proposed. And we ended up receiving the funds in less than a week after two years looking for funds. And then when we moved here, we did an investment round, but it was not so much related of a need. It was actually because I feel like coming from Europe, having no context, wanting to launch a B2B solution and really wanting to be able to put it in amazing brands, we were looking for investors that could help us open doors and get our solution introduced into the B2B world. And and also it took us six to seven months. And that was before the COVID, which <laughs> very bad timing because two months after we really were fully financed without any any struggle. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, that's a crazy story where you feel like you're at the, the end of the road and then somebody comes in last minute and they make they make a bet on you. And and that's the important thing, I think, is it's the people. And that's why obviously reputation is, is so important. Yeah. And then, you know, when you find, when you see those people, it's, it's taking a bet and taking a chance on them and doing everything you can to support them. So to get into, let's say some of the nitty gritty on the marketing aspect, you mentioned you, you're not paying for these influencers or bloggers to promote. I'm not sure if you guys focus on organic or other affiliate channels. I don't know if you do any other type of paid search. So from like a channel perspective, one is how do you approach marketing? And then two, since it can be lumpy at times, how do you forecast what that's going to drive for your business? So, yeah, I think like that that's the hardest part on, on the marketing side. It's like attribution and be able to spend kind of like knowing what you get in return. We, of course, do social ads and search ads. I think we experienced something very crazy, which is during the pandemic, we, when we were already one year and a half in the market, Facebook shut us down completely on ads. They took every company selling any PPE product and they put us all in the same basket. So for six months in the middle of a pandemic, all our revenue was purely organic because we had a lot of press. We had a lot. So the traffic was through the roof, but we were not able to spend $1 in our traditional paid channels, um, Facebook ads. And we were able to continue with Google, but Facebook put us uh, on the same bucket of all the PPE opportunistic brands for over six months and we were not able to get out of there. So that was a big challenge. And we were able then to kind of like brainstorm and, and think through other platforms. So we did an out-of-home campaign in New York 
in September during that period and kind of like from a branding standpoint, Touchland comes from the kind of like making an, an statement against hand sanitizer brands that basically scare you of everything surrounding you. If you see the marketing of those uh, of those companies, it's like your, your phone has more gems than a public toilet seat. Amazing. I don't want to know. <laughs> I don't want to be putting the phone in my face and thinking I have a toilet seat in my <laughs> face. So our goal was to really touch and come from the land of touch, really like empowering people to go through life without fears. And when we did the hand sanitizer out of home campaign, we were doing like very edgy campaign. Like I remember like one of them was like martinis uh, should smell like vodka, hand sanitizer should not, or hand sanitizer you don't want to be six feet away from. Like just mm, try to like bring that. a smile. Yeah, trying to bring a smile onto onto people's life rather than just like, well, I'm going to scare you so you buy into my brand. I think like that's very opportunistic and very short term. I like that. It's, it's often going against what your competitors are even approaching it again from the positioning of it being a beauty product to the antithesis of the advertising that they employ. And then there's a huge magnifying glass on, on that customer relationship in 2020, especially as people were at home and honestly lonely and looking for that connection. And I think it was a good way for, for brands to put more of a personality and, and maybe face on top of the brand and connect with their customers. And so what did that look like? Did you, did you see any shift in how your consumer, how your customers were acting and, and reaching out? And did you guys leverage that at all? So from the beginning, we've been the same. I think like with 2020 and you, and you were mentioning a lot of brands started getting away of using social media to sell product to actually using social media to, to build a community. So you would see a lot of brands that were selling, I don't know, yoga clothes, and they were just doing classes and like really trying to create that community. And that eliminated that sense of loneliness that everyone had, um, that everyone was through the roofs of this craziness of not being able to go out. And, and in our case, we continue to build the community. We activated everything with uh, initially with the Healthcare Hero program, and then we did the Touchland support teachers. And that way we continue to build the community. And, and I think if you go on our social media, it's a brand that has a very high engagement. We've been able, since the very beginning, we're a very small brand still to partner with brands that has millions of followers, but they, they really don't value how many followers you have. It's just how engaged is the community that you have. And Chris, on the customer support side is you guys work with, you know, thousands of customers and I've been pretty impressed by what some of them have done. What have you seen in just the evolution of what they expect and maybe even like personalization in that, in that customer journey? So the two most important ingredients of having a great customer support program is speed and personalization. So we know as consumers ourselves, if we have questions that we deem important, they better be answered as fast as possible. But at the same time, we don't want our brands that we're shopping with to sound like robots. And so, you know, you need to have that balance of, of speed, but with personalization as well. And so, for instance, if you're looking at Touchland, you're interacting with them, and I've seen what that looks like. Um, you'll notice that they give really personalized responses. They obviously want to respond as fast as possible, but you can tailor your responses uh, to make your customers um, feel like it matches your brand. So you don't want to come across as one way on your social ads, et cetera. And then when you're talking to someone on their team, they sound completely different and like a robot. So the personalization is is is, is key. And that's a big trend that you're seeing more and more of is, is how do you achieve that? We, you know, Gorgeous, we struggle with that ourselves. It's like we're, we're making speed so easy for customers, meaning you can automate a lot of your support volume. You can respond to customers as fast as possible. But we want to make sure that you can also still maintain that level of personalization. So that's a, a key challenge. Awesome. And Andrea, so it's, you know, what are we in now? April, the U.S. has doing, been doing a pretty good job with vaccine distribution. I'm excited to get my second shot tomorrow and really start acting more like a normal human again. As you think of this post-COVID world, and again, you, you made a bet on hand sanitizer and especially with like the moisturizing and the different smells and the different look well before COVID-19. So how do you view Touchland evolving as a brand and staying even more relevant post-pandemic? Innovation. I think in our case, it's continue innovating, continue surprising people. We have a lot of product coming very soon. Um, one of the challenges has been when, when you're growing so fast that you are extinguishing fires all the day and you cannot think medium long term. So intense for us is like, 
Do we believe that there's going to be a change in habits? No, it takes 45 days to create a habit. We've been almost a year when people really understanding how important hand sanitizer is like people will not stop brushing teeth and hygiene is not going to go away hopefully mask at some point when few few months when everyone's vaccinated we will be able to see people smile again um without having to imagine that but i do think that in our case we, we started touching not because there was going to be a pandemic we truly believe that this is just such an easy go-to solution you're in an airplane you're going to eat I'm a big fan of Mexican food. Whenever I forget my touchline at home, I, I freak out. <laughs> I have to, I go to the bathroom, I close with the elbows, I look like a surgeon and trying to eat without touching anything. So I think this is just like such an easy solution. And, and it happens with all the ages. And, and I think for, even for kids, we have so many parents that have said, I had to chase my kids to sanitize hands. And now it's just like a religious moment. Like they, I pop my power mist and all of them are like this, <laughs> like give me my, my mist. And I think that that's the most exciting part, like building a product that does not go away at the end of the day. It's a hygiene habit that we want to turn into a ritual of personal care. And we will continue to create more innovations for people to be excited about the brand and, and the lifestyle that it creates. Nice. I, I like that. And, and that question, by the way, was from Sarah from Pink. So thanks for that. So to get, to get back into the weeds a little bit, this is Lisa from Lisa over at Bolster. She's asking, um, and again, we can take this question a couple different directions, but it's like, how has your inventory allocation evolved over time? And as you forecast demand and need to replenish, how have you approached that? That's a good question. It's a hard one too. Um, so I think that's one, of, that's one of the hardest parts for us because when you're growing 1,000 to 100%, you have eight SKUs like it's kind of like a lottery like what's going to be purchased like especially with retailers because we've seen kind of like a tendency and a trend in e-commerce but with retailers it's that purchase department if they want to they prefer watermelon over aloe it's just a personal decision and they when they order they order 100,000 units so that kind of like breaks all your forecast and everything so it's about having a great communication with retailers in the first place, like really trying to understand what's going to be their forecast so you can put it in your demand planning and supply planning. And in our case, for example, one of the one of the things that we did during the pandemic, we were fully sold out in March 5th. So instead of just like waiting to receive more stock, it was very important for us to really understand the demand size. Like, what are we talking about? Are we talking about few hundred units a day or we're talking about hundred thousand units a day and so what we did was kind of like a kickstarter process program in a in shopify where people was able to buy pre-order and get the product in eight weeks which if you think about this in the middle of a pandemic putting a pre-order on a hand sanitizer of eight weeks wait time you may think that you're not going to be successful but i think entrepreneurs are a little bit crazy so we had to really understand like, well, let's just see what's, what happens, like what people really need. And surprised was we grew in pre-orders 1,300% in three weeks on eight weeks wait time. But on top of that, we had also implemented like a notify me when available. And we had 34,000 people subscribing in three weeks, which it was a complete madness. At the end of the day, also it was there was a lot of chaos. So we had from that girl, like some people just say, hey, like I need uh, to cancel this pre-order because I am having financial issues. And we would just re refund the money immediately because at the end of the day, we wanted to be a tool to be helpful for companies and maximize product availability. So we were very transparent. I always say it takes a lifetime to, to build trust and one second to lose it. And I think brands should operate with that and don't fall asleep in the trees thinking that you are untouchable, like no brand is untouchable and, and you always have to be coherent, consistent. And as you said, Chris, like the way you communicate in ads and everything, and then you have a very terrible customer experience. If you're not consistent, it, it is a bubble that at some point is going to explode. And I'm glad you mentioned some of the, the pre-order stuff when you were out of inventory. I know Lucas over at Roll.io was asking about that. So what did you... Or maybe even like, again, to get really nitty gritty, like, did you just hack some form up together? Did you use something from like the Shopify app store? How are you capturing their emails to process all of these back orders? And then what did that communication approach look like? So you could tell them when you were actually back in stock. So for the sign me up, notify me when available, there's an app in Shopify. I think it's 
notify me when available actually uh, or back in stock it's back in stock okay it's the app and it's really good and it allows you to automate all of that list and whenever the stock is available it automatically creates those email campaigns and in terms of processing the pre-orders like we just simply from the dev team we adequated all the copy and the communication towards making it very clear through the pdp through the checkout everything eight weeks wait time red big because we wanted to make sure CTA was pre-order, like we wanted to make sure that it was not tricky as a brand and that people was really getting the, the clear information on what they were opting into. And it ended up working out for everyone. Like people was excited when they received the products and we were able to kind of manage, plan, forecast what we had to produce. Nice. And so I have a question I'm really curious on. And so when I've run direct-to-consumer brands in the past or helped run, most recently this company called Watchmaster, it was over in Europe and we'd buy, you know, Rolex, Tycoyer, Breitling, Omega watches, and then we we would sell those. And so they'd either be new or refurbished. But again, we were taking these existing products or existing designs and we'd use a lot of data outside of, of our buyer behavior. And then with our buyer behavior to understand like, what are the fastest moving products? Where's the most, they're the most demand. But again, we weren't creating watches from scratch. We weren't saying, okay, the dial or the strap needs to look like this or the, or anything like that. When you're thinking of the sense of your product, and um, maybe I'm I'm the boring guy because I've got the um, the neutral because I don't really often it, go with the sense. It's, do- it's one of our best sellers. Like people in average by five and it's always, and se- you always have one incentive if you go to eat, like you want to make sure that you don't get any smell. Um, everyone has in their basket an, an incentive. Okay. I like it. There we go. So, so maybe I'm not the boring <laughs> guy, but h- how do you approach new sense? And I guess, how do you even approach to start? Like, how did you pick, you know, the first one or the first handful? Intuition a lot. Okay. Yeah, because it's really hard that at the end of the day, you are creating a new product that's not a better for you elevated hand sanitizer. So you may think, okay, well, like sparkling water, the best selling scents are this one, but that's a sparkling water. That's another category. And perfume, it's another category. So when you're creating something and you're alone, it's a lot of intuition. I personally also develop stuff that I like. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. very hard for me to develop stuff that I do not like. And in terms of also developing product, I think one of the most intelligent and easiest tools is your community. We always have been able to, for everything that we do, like which should be the next ascent that we do. I may remember one of the strategies that we did also was engaging the community when we were pitching at Target in 2019. We posted an Instagram post where we said, we're meeting with Target today, tag Target if you'd like to see us there. And the community manager at Target was like, who is this company that is coming to present today? They are driving us crazy. That's awesome. Um, So it's just like trying to do all these growth hacks and even like partnerships, like trying to develop partnerships that community expects to see because there are so many brands out there when you think about partnerships and we constantly ask which brands would you like us to partner? And we always, there's always like, top three that always is the same answer so it would be stupid not to ignore basically what the community wants yeah i love that use your your community army to uh to get target or others to to really open their eyes what was the first scent that you guys rolled out we launched all of them at the same time so it was so we we the best seller is the watermelon i can say Mm. that um second one is aloe citrus and unscented so which scent were you the most wary of that actually performed pretty well? I think watermelon. I was not expecting it to be the number one selling. It's, okay. Yeah, and it's the best seller in Alta. It's the best seller in a lot of retailers. So across the board, yeah, it's a winner. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious to see maybe scents by country or maybe even by state as well. I'm sure it, I'm sure it fluctuates a bit. What a little was, bit, yeah. What was... Um, Looking back, whether it's in like from your D2C approach, and I've got a couple more questions. I know we're almost at time. What was maybe your your biggest mistake or something that you smile or shake your head at that you made, let's say, earlier in the process? And obviously, we're all still learning, but something that you look back on now. Oh, I made a lot of mistakes. So, <laughs> But I, I, I'm also a person that thinks that you have to make mistakes to learn. And that if I didn't make those mistakes, there is a movie of the butterfly effect, which says that everything that happens to you prepares you for what you're going to go through. So if every mistake that I did when I was in Europe launching and everything prepared me to this, like, well, I think it was part of the process. 
but I mean, we did a lot, um, especially like from creating a product, conceiving a product. It just for a startup, it's it's just like something that you've you've never done before. Like you rather like get someone that has done that before in order to prepare you for like preparing budgets, understanding the process, the lead times, and everything because it's it's challenging to launch your own product. And then you know you're from you're from Spain. Right now, you're you're over here in um, the United States, uh, where I'm assuming you sell you sell predominantly. What does that international roadmap or plan look like? Do you guys still sell quite a bit over in Europe, or, or what's it look like as you look to take Touchland even more global? So one of the biggest challenges that Touchland has had is capacity. We sell out a lot of times, so we focus. We really wanted to be like in stock and available here in the US. And by doing that, you cannot be everywhere as much as you want. And sometimes you have to stand by and be able to go internationally when you have capacity. So in last year, prior to the COVID, we were in Korea, Italy, Mexico, and Canada. And we've been selling in amazing places. Like we have pop-ups in like the best department, the, the department stores and malls in Korea. In Canada, we're selling in Aritzia and many other places. And we're ex- right now preparing for like an international expansion. But I think you have to do it when you can deliver. Because I think sometimes as an entrepreneur, you want to be able to do everything. And, and I think with product and growth, you have to be mindful of your market, your responsibilities, your commitments, and be able to deliver in order to take to the next level. I love that. And so I've got one more question, how I always end these. Chris, we'll start with you. What is your number one piece of advice for entrepreneurs or direct-to-consumer brands today? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously coming from a biased position, uh, working for a customer support platform, but it's don't take your customers for granted. And don't think that just because you have a great product and your product's hot right now, that people are going to stick with you forever. Andrea said it, you know, you can build trust. It takes a long time to build trust, but you can lose that in an instant. So don't think that just because things are rocking and rolling, that that's going to continue. Make sure that you're investing in the foundation. You have a solid structure to deliver great support to your customers in a scalable way. Um, otherwise, you're not going to, you're going to lose all those customers as you continue to scale because you won't have the time and resources to, to cater to their needs. Nice. I, I agree. And Andrea, what's your, for fellow future or current founders and, and CEOs, what's your number one piece of advice? I think I always say the same and it's the typical thing to say, but to be perseverant. If I was listening to all the people in 2014, 2016, that they were saying that I was a dreamer, that I was that I should be doing other things and like diversifying the risk and I never listened. I had like a very clear idea of how I wanted to live my life and what I wanted to do when I wake up. And I think perseverance is something that never giving up and like you fall, you stand up again, you fall, you stand up again. I think that's that's a mantra that I always do and it keeps me going because at the end of the day, the ones that that get to the end goal is the ones that have persevered and gone through hell with, with a smile on your face. Nice. That, that's one of our mantras over here at Shabab as well. And it's something I know our, our founders have done themselves and, and bring on. And I'm glad, Andrea, that you listened to yourself and you were able to, you know, get touched on where it is today and join us. So I really enjoyed this. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time. And Chris, thank you for joining us as well. And then, of course, everybody in the audience, thank you very much. I know there's a lot you can do with with your time. And so appreciate you spending an hour with us today. We'll be back uh, next Wednesday at this time, probably for the next 20 plus weeks. So if there's other brands or people you want to hear from, please let us know. My email is carmstrong at shipbob.com. You can always hit me up. But thank you all very much. So have a great Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having us.